Hey everyone, welcome to episode 22 of the Judo Talk podcast. Judo Talk, Talk, 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 Judo Talk, Talk. Hey everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Judo Talk. So we've got, well, it's a really well i would say a really good podcast today um i've literally just finished recording it uh it's yeah it's brilliant it's quite a long one so you might need to digest it in a couple of bits but whether you're a coach a player whoever you are it's gonna be really really good um yeah, I wasn't sure, to be fair. I wasn't sure whether I was going to release it this week or wait till next week because, obviously, we've got the Olympic Games starting on Saturday. I was going to do a bit of an Olympic show. And then I sort of... Well, to be honest, I started recording it and then I just wasn't happy enough with it. So I decided I was going to ditch that. I know this is a great podcast and I know you guys are going to really enjoy it. I have a little chat with you guys at the end about the Olympics, uh, you know, places where you can watch it, uh, some of my thoughts around it and stuff like that. I'll put that on the end. But I want us to get into this podcast. It's really good. I know you guys are going to enjoy it. So let's jump straight in. Hey, guys. Welcome to this episode of Judo Talk. And today my guest is Alan McDonald. Say hello, Alan. Uh, hello. Thanks for thanks having me, Vince. <laughs> This is always the most awkwardest part. Everybody, whenever I say say hello, there's always something, whether it's a giggle, a delay, or just it's really awkward. Yeah, hoping the laptop doesn't die, I think it's probably the best one. <laughs> yeah, I hope so too. Yeah, so uh, let's get started, Adam. Like, it'd be really good if you could just give me a little bit of background, give the listeners a little bit of background about who you are and you know your involvement within judo. Yeah, so um, my background is... Uh, it's actually originally engineering. That's what I originally uh, wanted to set out to do. My dad's an engineer, so um, kind of went to university to do engineering. And um, I'd done judo when I was a child. I'd, I'd, I'd left because I'd gone on and done some other sports. And then when I went to university, I wanted to just meet new friends. Um, so I, I rejoined um, judo club and eventually ended up at the Edinburgh club um, with uh, Billy Cusack at the time, actually. So... Um, I trained at the Edinburgh Club for a couple of years and then uh, absolutely loved judo, loved the whole performance side of it and made a silly decision probably at the time, but uh, dropped engineering and uh, uh, started sort of training full time. Uh, and then from there, I went and did exercise physiology at university and then um, stopped doing judo, uh, like competing and whatnot. Um, but I got a job working with um, the Scottish Institute of Sport with the with the judo scotland program so i worked there for five years and um, before going to and joining british judo as their lead snc coach um, from 2014 to 2018 um, and then left there in 2018 and did some bits and pieces and now i'm up in scotland i'm the head of strength conditioning for the women's national rugby team so that's sort of my my whiz background and i didn't actually realize you were full-time at judo what how, how long did you do that for um, about four years. I wasn't very good. <laughs> <laughs> Me neither. Don't Still worry. not. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what? It's funny actually because we. I was having a chat with one of our coaches yesterday, and uh, as an athlete, I think because I'm so curious, I get as an athlete you get lost in the. Oh, is this right? Is this right? You just you just don't have, or at the time I didn't have a process to 
take of what's limiting me getting better. So then you kind of just get confused with everything. So as an athlete, I would probably be the worst person to coach because I was constantly in the coach's ear. Why are we doing this and not doing this? And oh, I think we should be doing this. So yeah, not not the best kind of athlete to train. But, um, yeah. yeah, I imagine uh, it didn't go down too well when you were full time that. Nah, nah, it didn't. So, um, so uh, yeah, but uh, ironically enough then, that's the sort of athletes I love coaching now. <laughs> I, I really like, I, I coach some, <laughs> now I coach some super intelligent people. So our, our captain, she's got a PhD in environmental physiology. Blimey. So she's super, super smart, super smart lady, um, but is really inquisitive, curious about why we're doing this, what's our thoughts on this. It's really good because it's an extra source of scrutiny, um, which is something I like. I really enjoy that as a coach, that being scrutinised because we are never 100% right. We make mistakes of all time. So, But funnily enough, I actually like the athletes that really challenge me and, and quiz me and probably the athletes that just nod and go, yeah, I'll, I'll do that, Alan. Like, they're the ones that you kind of go, well, no, challenge me. Like, <laughs> what do you that comes with a little bit of maturity though. Like I remember when I first started um, coaching, I, I wasn't as confident with that. And I would generally be, I, I wasn't as sure because I was still finding my feet. But one of the things that I learned was actually just saying to the guys, like, I don't actually know why we do something, but I'll go and have a look. And actually it forced me to be better because I then would go off and, and now I really enjoy that interaction because I feel like they're developing that love around the knowledge side of it, which is really, really important. And now I'm very comfortable with it, but definitely at the beginning of my coaching, I wasn't very confident in, in that way. Yeah. I think like at the beginning of my coaching, I was um, massively underprepared for the, the job that I was given. Um, and Scottish Institute really supported me well in that. And I say one of the, one of the bits I was just fortunate with was that the head coach um, and sort of director of the programme, David Somerville, I think, I think you'll, you'll know David. Yeah. He was really good at sort of giving me freedom to do things, but he was also good at setting me up with like mentoring opportunities. So then like I make, like if I look back at some of the stuff I did now, just like, what was I, what was I doing? But then you didn't know that, like I, I didn't know. So um, I think that's one of the interesting things about working in rugby is um, bar maybe five rugby sessions when I was 14 or 15, I've, I've never played rugby, certainly not to any sort of level. So then coming completely new into the sport with fresh eyes, I am the guy that asks the stupid questions. But for coaches who have been in the sport their whole time and take certain things for granted, and you, and you do, you ask, oh, how come we, we do that? And then the number of new little things that hopefully they've learned from me saying, why don't you just do this? And then, well, we've, we've never, like I, I suppose one of the, like an example of that would be um, in rugby, one of the biggest areas you're going to get injured is in collisions because you're running into people at full, full speed, you're going to get broken. So when I started working with women's rugby, they would really rarely do that because we don't want to get the players injured. But then you would come to a Six Nations tournament where you have five matches in seven weeks against the some of the best teams in the world, you're running into people and like our just attrition rate and injury rate was really high. So then obviously coming from, from judo, I said, well, in judo, you, you fight every day. That's part of the sport. And yeah, the first couple of times you move into full-time training, you're going to pick up niggles, but then you get tolerant to it and your body, body adapts. So what we now do in rugby is we have like a spectrum of contact, but there is contact in every single session. 
Um, sometimes it's full boom, you know, you're you're going, it's totally live, like you, you like match intensity, or I call them density games, where we do a small, we play in a small area of maybe four v four, but the the number of collisions or tackles that they make in a minute is way higher than a game, so it builds that tolerance. But then on other days, that are low intensity recovery days, we'll just do technical tackling. So I'd say that was like a particularly in women's rugby, something from just somebody coming in with not knowing the sport and saying, why don't we do this every day? And then, oh, because we'll get broken. Okay, but there's a spectrum. Yeah. yeah. That's really funny, actually. I was having a very similar conversation. So a friend of mine's assistant coach at London Irish, and we were talking about, because um, they're, they're just going back into pre-season, and we're talking about the fact that everybody has a collective understanding in that coaching regime because they're all rugby players. And actually, like, we're talking about different things and like we're having conversations around coaching and stuff and just a different um, stimulus from me asking questions. And he's like, well, I don't actually know. And we, we are not exactly in that sense, but we were having conversations like, well, why do you do this? Why do you not do this? And it was one of those really th- good things. And it's something that I've always tried to do with my coaching is try to get different stimuluses outside of the sport so whether it's us having a conversation whether it's me talking to different martial arts but I really think it's important to get those different stimuluses in your in your development isn't it oh 100% like ironically enough like we hadn't actually touched on this when we were speaking but so I, I do a, I'm doing a doctorate at the moment and part of the doctorates in decision making how how um if you think of as a coach or um you know, in my, in my position, strength and conditioning coach or sports scientist or physiotherapist, whatever, we make loads of decisions every day. And some of them are really, really critical decisions, but we don't really receive much decision-making training. Um, or even we don't really have that much access to just tools that help us make better decisions. Um, and one of the tools that, that I'm actually looking at is where you run a planning meeting or or whatever kind of meeting where you, you want an outcome that's going to help you, you plan training. And somebody's role within the meeting is to be deliberately um, uh, against it. They try to pick faults. They try to find errors. They try to find all the things you've not thought about. So a devil's advocate. Um, But the best kind of devil's advocate is somebody who has a diverse, totally different way of thinking. Because by nature, if you have five judo coaches planning, for example, a phase of Olympic training, they all think, like judo coaches, they'll have a little bit, they'll think differently, but by nature, their their knowledge has to be within this scope of a bigger scope. So bring somebody in from a different point of view. So um, I like as you, like I'm along your lines of thinking of trying to get as much diverse and planned opposition to what you want, because ultimately, if that person picks holes in it, finds faults that you couldn't find yourself, you can then fix them, and then the athletes are going to be better off, and then. What doesn't happen is people don't turn around and go, well, you were silly for not thinking about, about those things in the first instance. You go, do you know what I am? I'm not, I'm not that smart, but I was smart enough to figure out that if I got somebody else in to pick holes in it, then they could solve the problems for me. So. And it's not always, what I found with that, it's not always the fact that they necessarily find holes, but they will definitely pose questions that make you reevaluate it. And there's been definite times where somebody said something to me and I said, you know what, I really don't know 
my gut instinct is I'm still right, but I'm not sure why I'm right. Get, let me go off for a day and think about it. Yeah. And then I'll come back and go, right, this is the reason I, I'd managed to like process my thought process because I'm not very good at very quickly coming back, but sometimes I'll just get a feeling of that doesn't feel right. And I don't know why yet. And then I'll go back and go, yeah. well, these are the reasons. And they'll, they'll go, well, actually that makes more sense. Now you said that, but it didn't in yeah. the first instance. And then it just makes you better at, explaining your your process and doing your things which is ultimately better as well isn't it oh totally like yeah absolutely i think i think one of the things i've um it's been really good in the role that i'm in now because i work with an all-female squad um and even within the within the sport rugby the diversity of people within your team if you look at your front row to your second row to your your backs it's a completely different sport what you're asking them to do if, if we look at the demands of their positions is totally different and then the walks of life that people come from because of course it's a team sport. So you've got 15 people in your team, but working with an all female squad has um, totally changed um, the way I think about things. So a lot of the time it's not so much the what we are delivering. The what we're delivering is fairly easy. It's the how we are going to deliver it. Um, and that's massive. And when we, when we do our planning meetings now, um, with our with our co- with our coaching team, we obviously first of all go right. What's the outcome that we want? Okay, right. These are the outcomes. This is the what we want to play like this. We want to defend like this and attack like this and so on. Um, but then the second stage of that is then okay. How are we going to deliver it? So it's like an example. Um, uh, in our defence at the moment, we are not the most chatty. We need to speak because you'd have good communications to know on the person on the right you what they're doing, the person on the left you what you're doing because then you can you can have a good defensive line, for example. So then how do we need to behave in coaches during those parts of sessions to encourage chat? Now, one of the big things is if the, if the players go quiet, as a coach, your natural tendency is to want to go, come on, let's speak up. You're on nine, come on, you're on so-and-so. And, and you tell them. And then, of course, it comes to the match and they've never trained the communication aspect or because you've taken it over in the session. So then it's, okay, during this bit of the session, as coaches... We need to be zip, let them lead it, let them talk it, and then we can debrief it afterwards. So, um, yeah, so the how the how is a massive bit now. Mm. I always wondered, actually, it's something I was going to ask you. How, what's it like being uh, in a sport as not the coach of the sport? So, like, almost like an auxiliary member, and that's not, uh, how that doesn't come across disrespectfully, but like say in judo, there's a big culture of weird judo people and you're yeah. entering into that as an S&C coach. So you're there to do a specific job. So you will see things completely differently. And yeah. how, how have you found that? Um, all honesty, massive, massively positive, hmm. like really positive experience. One of the things I really like um, about working in rugby is, I don't know the sport. Like, I mean, I try and learn as much about the sport as possible. Um, like I spend all my time with the coaches. I suppose rugby is a slightly different dynamic as well. And this took a bit of time to probably get out of the way I had been conditioned in the in the sport of judo. I mean, like, like sort of mentally conditioned or what your role is. In rugby, the head coach and the SNC coach are like, you're like the you're like the head coach's right hand man. So you're like their guy. So the two of you do all the planning together. Like me and me and our head coach, we do all of the planning together. Me and him are in every single meeting. Whereas in judo, you're you're called a support member of staff. So your job is to 
kind of be led by the coaches. And if the coaches want you to do this, you kind of you kind of do it. Um, you obviously challenge back and whatnot, but there's a much different hierarchy, at least in some of the places I've worked. It's kind of like that. Whereas in the sport of rugby, they really value diversity. So me me coming into that is very much being a bit of a change that, oh no, you're expected to feed into this. You're expected to look at this drill and be able to think of it as a good drill. If it's not a good drill, is it in the right place in the session? Um, all these sort of things. And of course I have no background in that. So it's been it's been really good and I've learned an absolute ton. And one of the things I've learned is when I look back at some of the stuff in June and I think, oh, how you design sessions and um, the order in which you, you, you put things in sessions, the, the physical, can you use um, judo, judo drills to get a physical stimulus rather than having to use the weight room the whole time, for example. Um, so it's actually, it's actually been really positive and something that I found that was just changed my, my, uh, my first sevens tournament that I would, so in, in, in Scottish rugby, I lead on the, on the women's overall. And in my first season, I did the 15s and the sevens, which is a slightly different type of rugby. My first tournament was the final of the world um, series qualifier for the Scotland women to get in my first ever sevens tournament. And the coach was so open to, right, you understand how to pre- prepare people for big tournaments, regardless if you know rugby or not, right? How do you think we should be doing this? To, like, which I thought, God, I've been in this sort of three months and that's a pretty big responsibility. But I think they just, they're so, because they can always turn around and go, now nah, we're not going to do this, we're going to do this. But at least, they, at least they want to get someone else's opinion. So... Yeah. Could you give me so when you were saying then like you wish you'd done uh, a little bit more on the mat? Could you give me like a, a specific example of one of the thoughts that you look back and think, well, I most probably could have done this slightly differently? Yeah, I think I suppose the, the caveat or, or one of the one of the challenges with that is in, in a lot of them. I suppose when I worked in when I worked at Judo Scotland, um. I have no like qualms about it now. I had no idea what I was doing. Yeah, <laughs> probably shouldn't have been in that position if I'm honest. Like, uh, just dreadful. Um, like, still, people still obviously got like some good results and stuff, but it's probably more in spite of what I was doing rather than me me adding to it. But I think um, one of the things I was really big on was making sure that the training that we did, we could. Um, it was easy to progress and, and monitor adaptations, but the adaptations were so far removed from the sport that never really knew if they ended up like transferred into the sport. Um, so like as an example, you'd put people through like really big gym blocks um, to get really big physical adaptations and then hope that that would transfer on the mat. Whereas now, a lot of the time you can get a lot of the power work that you do, you can get a lot of that stimulus on the mat. And just as an example, um, if you think of the, hopefully, like it's not a difficult concept, but maybe the way I'll explain it, it's not the best. But when you when you're throwing somebody, you obviously want to accelerate and you want to break their balance, accelerate them for the shape of the throw, and then you want to deliver the power through the throw. During that throw, the force or the amount of strength you need to throw somebody will change, and a big part of that will depend on how the person can resist. So there'll be a point once you've broken their balance, you've accelerated in and you're delivering the power, where essentially they become weightless. Mm. And that's what you see on like your YouTube clips, your Instagram clips, when somebody just whips over so quick and it's like they've, they've hit the point, they've delivered power in a really quick period of time and then the person can't give resistance. 
So in a throw, you get what we'd call like a descending force curve, which means that the force is probably higher earlier on in the throw, and then it decreases as the throw goes on. And one of the things um, I've done is we have these, <laughs> essentially they're really fancy bathroom scales, but they're called force plates. People stand on them, they tell you every sort of metric you can think of about the forces that's going through the ground. And when you do a throw on the Marinucci comb, you actually see this, you see the, the force will go up and then it'll just die off and tail off. So then when you think about training and trying to train power for judo, you obviously want to be able to train lots of power in a short period of time. But one of the other things you want to train is, well, what if the person who's who I'm throwing does manage to create resistance at some point along the throw? And I've never been able to train that just doing the throw specifically. So something you can do and is you see a little bit of it now, but it's using the really thick rubber bands. So they're called jump stretch bands, but they're the thick ones. They're not the really thin Uchi Komi bands yet. These are big ones that I think they're originally used for power lifters mm. to, to, to squat against. But having people throw against them, because as you stretch it, the amount of um, the force in the, in the elastic band is going to increase as you stretch it. It means that if you're trying to throw, there's an actual, there's an ascending force curve. So actually the force is smaller at the start. And then as you try to rotate in for the throw or deliver the power, the force like exponentially gets better because it's an elastic band. If we then go, okay, well, what, what's actually happening there? There's certain muscle fibers or bits of your muscle that are used at this stage of the throw that then you're very rarely ever, ever working in a normal throw because the person then becomes weightless and you throw them. Using an ascending force curve, you're going to be able to target muscle fibers that you would never usually be able to switch on in a throw but because they're now part of that throw pattern, your brain has a feed forward mechanism. So feed forward mechanism is when you step off the pavement, you don't actively have to think, oh, stabilize my ankle and my hip. And my... Because your brain has done it so many times, it feeds forward. And actually, if you were to look at the activation around your ankle, right before you hit the ground, your brain has fed forward and switched those muscles on because it knows that pattern. If you do enough stuff with really heavy bands, your brain will probably start feeding forward and go, I've got to activate loads of muscle fibers here because I know what's about to come next, which means if somebody does resist, your brain switched on way more muscle than it, than it does usually and your power will just go through the roof. So that's something that if I'd understood that better at the time, I probably would have done a lot more of that maybe two or three times a week. In, yeah. In you know what? That's what, one of the things I really sort of respect the complexity of because – I, from somebody who does judo, and I've got limited knowledge around lot, many different areas, but limited knowledge around SNC. But when I think about judo, so you've got just complete spectrum. So you've got where you break the the balance perfectly, and the throw couldn't feel any sweeter. That's like the 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 beautiful. You come in, it feels so nice when you throw in. To the other end of that, where you hit like the heaviest brick wall you've ever hit in your life. Okay, so you've yeah. got and everything in between that. And then not only that, you have one athlete who's short, one athlete who's really tall in the same weight category, one athlete that likes to do uh, a Sianagi off their knees and another one that likes to do a stand in Uchimata. And just in those, but everything in between that, you've then got to try and make them physically prepared to not break. 
So like yeah. the, that just blows my, and that doesn't even take into considerations the different in weight, the different age groups, the different uh, experience. So, you know what I mean? So for me, it absolutely blows my mind how you'd even attack that. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's blown my mind for a long time, but it's still, still, kind, still kind of does. I suppose, um, I suppose uh, this is where um, me having a background outside of sport is probably probably quite useful. So I think it's, I think I said at the beginning that originally I'd sort of looked at engineering as a career path, and um, like engineering, math, maths, and physics are like my thing. I like it is geeky, but I absolutely love maths and physics. I spent. In my spare time, I spent all my time looking at maths and physics stuff. Um, Laugh a minute then, yeah? Laugh a minute. So, oh, absolute <laughs> great banner on a night out. Um, talking about Pythagoras. But I suppose one of the things that comes from that sort of background is this, this concept, and it comes from comes from physics of first principles thinking. And first principles thinking is a way of um, breaking down really complex problems into more manageable and um, more manageable parts. So if we were to um, if we were to take the complexity that you've said of judo of all these different things, or to go, okay, fundamentally, how do you throw somebody? Well, there's obviously a positional element. We know you've got to get into some sort of position. There's probably less desirable positions and there's more desirable positions. And you guys as the coaches, whether you know or not, you probably know what it looks like. You maybe can't explain why. Oh, why is my shin like that? And why is... But you at least know, I prevent it to look like this and look like this. Okay. So you've got a pattern element. Um, you've, you've then got... Or you've got the positional element. You've then got the patterning element, which is the sequence of how things go together. So I want to pull my arms and I want to move with, with my body. So I've, I've got this pattern element. And then there's a final bit, which would be the power element, which would be the forces that I need to do when I, when I, when I throw something. So, so really my biggest thing coming from the SSE is that ultimately you're moving an object. That's what you're trying to do. You're trying to move an object. So then it, it comes down to how do you move an object? Well, it's going to be your, your muscles and your skeleton and all those sort of things. But actually the way you move something is through Newtonian physics. It comes down to if I want to move a mass, I need to produce some sort of force and I'm going to have to accelerate that object. So then if we do look back to like, to like, to like school, it's ultimately going to be the, the force you produce is going to be the mass multiplied by the acceleration. And there's probably no point in going into the other circle. Definitely don't, don't, don't. But then if you, but then if you go, okay, so I've got to produce force. So, and it's my muscles that produce force. So I have to get my muscles to be stronger. And then you go, well, which muscles is it that's going to be going to, going to throw somebody and then you go, well, it's my pulling muscles, it's my pushing muscles. And that's how sort of I go through the process of going, okay, the outcome, I'm really clear that the outcome I want is to throw somebody. That's what I want. What are the rate limiters or the things that are limiting my ability to throw somebody? There's the positions that I get in, there's the pattern or sequence that I move in, and then there's the power. Okay, if we look at the element of power, um, it comes from power is force times velocity. Okay, so how do we produce force? It comes to, I've got a mass and I've got to accelerate it. Right, that means I've got to get stronger somehow. And then if you just recognize the, the muscles that, you've, that, you, that you're gonna have to, to use in the throws, that's then kind of how you start solving the problem. And I think where people get confused 
particularly if you're like I get confused and I'm meant to be have expertise in SSC, but this concept of transfer and the when you so this is it's taken me a long time to be able to think like this, but you might have a theory and say, no, I think you need to do this, Alan. And I might say, no, I've, I've got my own beliefs and whatnot. I need to do this. But then at some point you just need to test it. Yeah. <laughs> and then at some point when you test it, you can update your belief system. And one of the things that's absolutely apparent from the research, this has been researched a deck is if you improve the, it's your brain that regulates the way your body moves if your brain doesn't want you to do something like you, you know, that there's boiling water there. Most people cannot overcome that to put their hand in it. The brain just, it'll switch off the muscles. Not going to do that. It's going to damage me. So your brain regulates it. So if you improve just the strength of muscles, let's just say you improve the general strength through your squatting, your deadlifting and whatnot, those muscles will give feedback to your brain to say, I can produce this amount of force. And then my brain is going to go, oh, great. I'll use you then to do a really heavy task. Whether I've done this task or not before, my brain will still be able to go out. They're the strongest muscles. So I'm going to, I'm going to recruit them. So the, the idea of transfer, there's certainly ways they'll transfer in better, but people then look at heavy weightlifting and they'll, they'll look and go, there's nothing like judo. It doesn't transfer. When you've got a like, I, like I put myself firmly in this position. I was once in that situation. Where I was like, yeah, this is really confusing. That looks nothing like that. Mm. How does it work? And then you look at the studies and you can update your belief system and go, well, actually, when people just improve the strength of a muscle, their brain then goes, oh, I'll now start using that muscle for this task. <laughs> well, wasn't that the ba- like a huge base, and please correct me if I'm wrong, of like the Russian um, system of that just physical preparedness, like just making sure that athletes, regardless of what sport they were going to do, they were actually physically capable of then moving on to more specialised tasks, weren't they? 100%. And it's recognising that the more, the more capacity that you've got, then one, you're going to work sub-maximal, so you can do actually more of your technical training. Mm. So then do more of the stuff that you think is going to transfer in highly the technical skill work because you can just do more of it because you've got such a good physical preparedness. Um, but I, I do think a basic level, and if you're if you're not a competitive judo player and you don't have access to a strength and conditioning coach and you, you're recreational and you, you want to get better, just getting globally good at kind of everything in, in the weight room will help you. Like it doesn't need to be like really complicated rocket science. And like to put this in perspective, there's, um, quite quite a lot of the time. So I rugby's a running. There's a lot of running depending on your position in, in rugby, and we can spend a lot of time trying to change people's running mechanics through doing technical drills. If you don't, I've tried this and failed miserably. So I've got good experience. There. If you just try to address the technical element, and you don't change the people's like hardware off, like let's say their glutes or their hamstrings the brain won't want them to change their running pattern because it's still going to go, well, my glutes and hamstrings aren't very strong. Why use them for that task? But if you do still do the technical work, but you really, for example, in running, target the glutes, target the hamstrings, target some things around the ankle, the brain will then go, right, wait a second. Those muscles are really strong. They're going to help me accelerate quick. Let's start using them in that task. Um, as, as long as it's a well-designed program and whatnot and 
that's sort of where I think in judo sometimes people they get caught in this middle ground of I need to look make my resistance training always look like my judo throw and then it's not enough to upgrade them physically because the skill of whatever you're doing is is too difficult to really target those muscles it doesn't look enough or it's not high speed enough to be the throw so you kind of go what rate limit are you addressing there it's like what is it and then before too long you go don't really know actually well it's funny actually because um when I find this mostly with adult beginner intermediate, so anything up sort of even black belts to be fair, but I'm talking like non elite adults um, yeah. and children uh, sort of up to maybe 18 who are of a national to international standard where they're saying to me they want to do all of these complex throws like the, you know, the huge marks, the ones that are really powerful, really look good. You know, the ones that they want to shove on Instagram. And then I ask them to do like a squat, uh, some basic animal movements down the mat. And you can really see how they're unable to access the correct muscle groups in the correct order. So that it's not just the fact that they can't, it's, it, it's the coordination of the movement because what people forget is like, yeah, in, in, in your throws, you're using certain muscle groups, but it's also accessing it in the right chain. So not being able to do a squat, for me, it just screams alarm bells. The fact that somebody can't do a squat and yet they're wanting to do this. And I'm not saying if you, you've got like a really heavy squat, you can do these things. I'm just saying if you can't do a squat, then actually you're going to really struggle to do the skills that are needed. Well, absolutely. Like, I think we share that exact same sort of same belief. And if we were to come back to that sort of concept earlier, which, by the way, if people are, I've, it's not my concept, it's one that I've, I've stolen from somebody much smarter than me, a coach called Nick Winkleman. So he has this concept of, can you get in the right position? Can you move in the right pattern right now? Let's think about delivering the power. So we go to sort of that sort of like position. Can you get in the right positions? That's what you're talking about there, that if, if we think, right, when we, do a, when we do a full squat where we're going as deep as we can, and let's say the, the hips go below the knees, so you're, you're really sitting as deep as possible. We think of the position that your hip joint has got to move through when you do that. And you've got your, your, your pelvis. And then as you, as you go down, your, your thigh bone starts rotating out of the way. But then as you get deeper, it starts rotating in the way. You're getting this movement of tissues within that joint. But through doing that movement, what we're, one of the things that we're doing is that joint and the tissues there are giving feedback to your brain. So as the tissues stretch, we end up having these, these um, tissues that go through them called mechanoreceptors. And when they stretch, they, they, they give off signals. So then your brain starts building up a picture of, oh, this is what my hip looks like. This is the available range of movement I have in my hip. Oh, this is what the available range of movement I have in my knee looks like. So then it's actually called visoelastic plasticity, I think. It's where this brain... Oh, yeah, like, that one, that one, yeah. Yeah, that, that <laughs> one. <laughs> it's where um, it's, it's, it's basically this, like, this. your brain has this big picture of yourself. So... When you're training those youth athletes, uh, you want a level of consistency in what you do. So you want to be doing jumping. You want to be doing squatting. You want to be doing lunging. You want to hinge at the hip. You want to do upper body pushing. You want to do upper body pulling. You want to do rotational type work around your trunk and you want to do bracing. Those are sort of some themes. You probably want to bolt on crawling and your animal-based movements, those locomotive movements. Um, onto that and probably some carrying stuff as well. You want to you do piggybacks, those things. If we were say there are the consistent themes that you want, 
if we're trying to build this big picture within our brain of what we look like, we want variations off those themes. So as an example, well, I think I just gave one there. If we're going carrying, right, we want to, the carrying's going to teach the body to brace at the trunk while moving at the, at the hips. So I can do piggybacks, I can do baby carries, I can do shoulder carries, I can do around the worlds, I can do the over and unders where people go through the legs and whatnot. That's the same theme of carrying, but it's variation within that. And what that'll do is that'll help my brain to build a picture of, oh, this is what my body looks like because when they're crawling around me and around the world, my hip joint moves in a slightly different way in my trunk. Oh, there's a relationship there. There's a sequence or a patterning of how my body needs to, to, to move or, or how the muscles need to move to be able to do that task, right? That builds this picture up. Once your brain has this huge picture of how it can do things, you then go into a, a technical sport like judo. Yeah, the first couple of times, it's a new movement and you're, you'll be all wobbly, be all over the place. But then as your brain starts going, oh, well, I know what my body looks like. All right, I just, the variation then goes from being this big to then being a bit closer, a bit closer, a bit closer, a bit closer. And then eventually what you'll find is in elite performers, there's still variation in, in, mm. in everything, but it's just a much smaller bandwidth. And it's very difficult to get that if the person to be with doesn't have this big variety. And I think that's why when you, you'll, you'll have had it as a judo coach, I have it in SSC coach, when you get a gymnast coming to you, the gymnast comes in and you can teach them to do everything in two minutes because their brain has this picture of their body. And then you say, oh, just uh, squat like this. Or I want you to do this. And they can mm. just do it. And then you find an athlete who's never done that. It's just the, their brain doesn't have the same image of what they look like. Yeah, and I use, um, so from a coaching point of view as well, I use, I like to use those methods in the warm-ups, um, especially with the younger ones uh, and to a degree adults, because what I find is firstly it's enjoyable. The kids generally enjoy it. They actually prepare themselves for the sport of judo a little bit better. But also for me, I can start identifying anybody on the map before we even get to the judo where I think, you know, are they physically not able to do those things? Do we need to do a little bit more work with them? Is this then going to mean, say we're doing a particularly hard technique um, that they're going to possibly struggle with that? I can identify that a lot earlier. But also as well, the kids that I know who can do those things and they might be struggling this session, well, is it the end of the week? Are they particularly tired? You know, and all yeah. these things, they're just a really good way of giving you a lot of information just from your warm-up. Oh, definitely. And I, I think I'm, I'm doing a bit of, bit of work with um, an organization at the moment. And one of the, one of the, the sort of um, tools that we're working on is a 10-minute window at the beginning of a session. Like 10-minute window at the beginning of the session where you pick five of those movements, whether it's a, a jump and a land, whether it's a squat, a crawl, or you, you pick five of them um, and you do them 10-minute window at the beginning of every session. Not only is it a training tool for those younger athletes, so it gives them some sort of stimulus for balance and coordination sequence. For you, it's your sort of diagnostic or at the start of the session to go, well, wait a second. Um, like Sarah usually can squat all the way down, but she's mm -hmm. not doing it. Right, do I need to do a little bit of extra work on mobility um, right before the session? Or do I need to recalibrate and think, oh, I was going to be doing this, which is really demanding on the hip today, but they're not moving very well. Well, why is that? So I think that sort of, um, I'd say that's like a, if we, if you think like 
I've been out of judo for a while now, but I'd imagine like a judo class is probably between 50 minutes and an hour. So if you're sort of having 10 minutes, you know, it's like 20% of your session, but what that can give you, because you know, diversity of movements is really important, what that can give you in building a picture for the rest of your session is really important. And that's sort of why I think if you do it at the beginning of the session, one, you make sure it gets done, but because you're giving them variation, it helps light up that brain straight away to go, oh yeah, that's the position my hip can go in, oh, that's the position that my ankle can go on and so mm -hmm. forth. Right now, when I come to do my judo specific stuff, my brain image is, is switched on. Well, what I've actually found um, a couple of times, actually, um, when I was working with more advanced juniors, and especially we're leading up to tournaments, there's been a couple of times where I've noticed a couple of the children not being able to do certain things. And that for that raised an alarm to me. And it, when we had got through what we were doing, I'd go over to them and go, are you right? Are you injured? Or, you know, just ask the question. And then you can see, because they don't necessarily, not all the time, the kids, especially if they know they've got a tour, but want to tell you yeah. that there's something wrong. And it might not be an injury. It might be something at home. It could be they're just tired from exams. But it just gives you that cue to then go over and just ask one more question or two more questions. And it just informs you, because sometimes I've gone, you know what? For tonight, I want you to do something slightly different, and it just get, and it takes the onus off them because sometimes they they want to impress the coach, they want to be tough, they want to be going through, not show any weakness, and it just get and I feel like it just releases the pressure from them, and they're able to go, thanks, you know, because they would yeah. never have asked for it. Yeah, no, totally. I think everything you've said there is like spot on. So no, definitely, if you can. Getting some of that, getting some of that sort of that sort of movement training, really good quality of movement. Of course, they're fresh at the start of the session as well, so they should be able to show you what they they they, they can demonstrate. And I think an important one as well, working with like, and I, I don't work with development athletes anymore, but um, I uh, it's you, you still find eating issues in sport in mm -hmm. others because you're not trying to make weight when you're chronically dehydrated the elasticity of your tissues change because of course they're they're they've not got the water between them so if somebody's really badly dehydrated from making weight and of course people do hide things for a, a number number of reasons having that sort of diagnostic right at the start of your session to be able to go oh someone their hip hinge doesn't look like they're growing as well i wonder if they've got any water in their body to maybe have a conversation <laughs> i will say now at no point does it go through my head oh the hip hinge doesn't look right but for me <laughs> it's just like something's not right over there i'll, I'll go yeah. investigate her like yeah i'm not that clever i don't i there's no way i could assess i'm that. using these big words i've read online i don't know what they mean <laughs> <laughs> so when you obviously you worked with british judo and they've got a really you know high-end a nice facility for s and c how Okay, so what I'm trying to say is like, I like the idea of having the judo mats and the gym together. I like it all just being part of it. What's it like with the athletes when you go down to the S&C gym? Are there some athletes that buy into it because it's a separate part of their training, but some also think, well, it's not judo. Like, how do you deal with that? Have you noticed any differences in that? Uh, yeah, like, it's, it's, I think, like, I'm quite fortunate. I've worked with, prior to just working with judo, I done strength conditioning with like multi-sports so I've done volleyball hockey and I think within every sport there's different cultures so like that's just a global thing if you've, you've within a sport you've probably got a type of culture then within different training environments and coaches philosophies within that you have you have different cultures as well so I know for example um like in Bath 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 
judo judo at least it did when when i was an athlete had a very strong like basis of physiology so the coach there jürgen came from you know the german system very strong understanding of physiology really um traditional periodization of that sort of thing so then understandably athletes who come through that system really probably more if you would take like a distribution of them they probably value that side of training perhaps slightly more from somebody who comes from a club where you know they, they don't have that same like same. a rocky field you know like where they're yeah, in the snow like running with logs that that exact kind of feel so i don't know where some of them are but so you so you get that different i suppose one of the challenges i had or like, i don't say that in a negative thing i mean it's like a positive positive thing is when, when i worked at british you know, there was i think six or seven different coaches who'd all come from different places. So you had some coaches who really valued the SSC side of things. You had other coaches who it wasn't around when they were an athlete, so they didn't need to do it. You also have, you know, coaches who have different experiences. So some of them have, are genetically really, really good. So probably didn't need to do the gym because if you were to regress there, if you use that first principles that I said at the beginning, their force is already super high. So then why would they need to do strength? Because they're already stronger than other people. But then if you're working then with this athlete, they maybe aren't the same genetic specimen that you are. So how do you improve their force then? So um, for me, it was it was quite challenging. I suppose the, the vehicle for, for trying to get the work in was we would do individual athlete plans and, and try to recognize what, from my point of view, if there was a physical rate limiter there. And, uh, and it would change, like hopefully with athletes, you, as they get older, you do a lot of the strength work so then they are strong enough so then you can look at some of the more um i call them higher level physical quality so a, a massive a massive one in judo is this concept of rate of force development it's basically how much force you produce in a really quick period of time because if me and you both are going to if i'm going to throw you and you're going to try and try and resist if i can produce more force in you quickly i'm going to move you aren't i mm. so i suppose like once you tick off the, the base level of like getting people strong, it's then trying to get them be able to produce that force really quick. That's the bit that's quite often difficult to develop if you're just going to do judo. And the reason for that is, is one of the biggest factors that limits rate of force development is your tendon stiffness. Now, that doesn't mean that your tendon doesn't stretch. It just means that when the muscle pulls on the tendon, the tendon then pulls on the bone and that's what moves your bone. That's how you, how you move. If imagine my muscle starts contracting, but my tendon just keeps stretching before it gets to a point where it moves the bone, that's time. Mm. And that's time that I don't want to have. So there's t- there's certain training that you want to do to stiffen your tendon up so that when your muscle contracts, the tendon is stiffer and it pulls on the bone earlier. The training to improve that tendon stiffness doesn't, you can't really do it on the mat. Like, so as an example, here's, here's, here's an example of an exercise. If you were to go on your typical leg extension machine, we've probably all seen these in the gym for your, your quads, you lift your leg up. If you put the maximum amount on that machine so you can't move it and you try to lift it as hard as you can and as fast as you can for three seconds, it won't move because you're pushing against the movable object. So it's hard and as fast as I can for three seconds and a rest for maybe 10 seconds. If I repeat that sequence five times, have a couple of minutes rest. And then I did three total sets of that over a really quick period. I mean, two or three weeks. So maybe a total of six, six bouts of that sort of training, your stiffness of the tendons around your knees will improve. So now when I want to throw somebody and my muscle contracts, the tendon pulls quicker on the bone, I can produce force quicker. 
to get those tendon adaptations, there's nothing that you can, that I found that you can really do on the mat that will give that. So then if you don't get people in the gym to do that, you will always be limiting the, how explosive somebody can be because the sport does not allow that adaptation to occur as far as we know at the moment. Yeah, I, I, that's sort of blown my mind a little bit um, because we always think about in judo, there's always people that go, no, it's about technique, about application of the sport, understand it. And I think, yeah, that's right, because essentially the more you're able to create reactions, the easier the throwing process comes, but that doesn't actually help you with any physical adaptation. That makes you better at judo, but it doesn't necessarily give you the resilience to keep on going. And when you get it wrong it doesn't help you in injury prevention or, or anything like that, does it? Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. So it definitely doesn't help you in injury prevention. I think it, it comes back down to what we sort of chatted about earlier, that there's always a why this and why not that type situation. As a coach, you've got to make these decisions. And I think, um, I'm sure you won't mind me name, but I remember when, when I used to work with Ewan, Ewan Burton, Ewan's judo skill level, was so high compared to pretty much everybody else he would train with um, at our facility. Um, no matter what type of randor you put him in, he was so efficient, he was so skilled, he had such good movement, such good action reaction. It just wasn't a big enough physical stimulus for him to, to get a massive adaptation. But then you send him away and you're getting him to fight, you know, all the foreign people who, um, are at the same level as him. And if you don't then give him some sort of stimulus to improve that, he's going to go and get beat. So then for him, there was an additional requirement as he got later on in his career to go, right, we're going to have to be creative and think outside the box here to give you adaptations that the sport will not give you. If you then say for another athlete who's potentially physically really good, and I'd say, if I'm, if I'm honest, I think in our country, we, we, we do produce quite good physical specimens perhaps sometimes at the detriment of the technical side of things, maybe because it's harder to measure. But I'd say absolutely with those athletes that are maybe developing and you've got them strong and you've got them powerful. You, if you improve their strength five, excuse me, 5%, great. You could probably improve their judo overall performance 10% if you just have them maybe be a bit more convincing with their action reaction or, or whatnot. So I do think it's a case of like it, it depends, but certainly when you get to those upper like levels of like elite performance, um, it does come down to like like fractions of seconds of things because everybody is strong, everybody is fast, everybody knows they've got all the video analysis now. I know that you twitch and do this. I know all these things. Like it's a bit like under meter race. They know what everybody's going to do. So then at some point, a, a rate limit will be the physical side of things. So when you do get to those upper levels where you're top athletes you need to be intelligent with your training and be like, right, what is limiting my ability to produce that force that 0.1 of a second earlier? And you'll probably find it's rate of force development. Okay, what are my rate limiters of rate of force development? And tendon stiffness will definitely be one of them. Okay, what's my training tools to improve that? Can I do it on the mat? Nope. Okay, I need to do the gym. <laughs> mm. Yeah, and it, it does sound very simple. And even, even for the coaches that think, well, you know, they need to do more randori, they need to be on the mat more. The better their physical conditioning is, the less they'll have to, like the less stress they'll put on their body through it. So they're actually conditioned to be on the mat more. So it's actually a win-win, isn't it? Oh, totally. Like if you can get somebody in good physical condition, 
then the I call it like the cost. The cost of the session is less to them because um, if the total strength of my body is 100 units and to throw people costs, you know, whatever, like 50 units, I've only got double that amount of reserve. If I can push my units up to like a thousand, then throwing somebody's really easy. Mm-hmm. I can do that loads and loads. And like, sometimes it's good to take examples from other sports to, to help create like a picture or a story. But if you, if you look at the marathon runners now, they, they don't just do your, like the, the sport is running 26 and whatever miles. They start off their pre-season, their build-up with like 60 meter sprints. Mm. Because they know if we improve our maximum speed, then the race speed is way easier. Does that make sense? So if their yeah. maximum speed is here and their marathon speed is here, I've only got a little bit of reserve. But if I can push my maximum speed up and up and up, then actually my marathon speed feels really easy, which then means that all my other training intensities are also easy. So I can do more work above race pace, which then means race pace is really easy. And I could probably move my race pace up. It's a bit the same in judo. It's if I can just improve my maximum power, my maximum strength, my maximum aerobic capacity, then a judo session will seem easier. So I could do more of it. Or the important thing for me would be not doing more of it, but being able to do more work at competition intensity and above. Because if we're talking about transfer, which is the holy grail, the more you can train at the intensity of your sport and slightly above, the more exposure you get to the movements, the because obviously we move a little bit different when we go at competition pace from or competition intensity from below. So the more exposure you can get to that, the better you're going to get. How do you do that? You need to improve your top capabilities. Mm. And actually, one thing I wanted to ask you, so I'm quite interested in this. With when it comes to athletes, especially as they're they're trying to break through, okay, so what I'm talking about is top-level athletes, maybe they're at sort of World Cup level, uh, you know, they're pushing through onto the world stage. How is it different for you as as an S&C coach? What's the difficulties compared to somebody who's already made it through? So for my example might be, say when Ewan was at the top of his sport, he knew he could plan these events. He was doing the Worlds, Europeans, you know, he'd get those in. But as they're starting out, they can't do that. You know, it's really difficult. And and it's almost like one of those things where the, the people trying to break through, they lose their season. There's no such thing as a season because every point's valuable. As you approach that, you must be looking, somebody like you and at the end of his career compared to his beginning, like at the end is the easiest for you to work with. And at the beginning, it must be like, you know, juggling balls all the time. It is, it is. I think think there's obviously like a physical um, challenge there because there's probably loads of things that you're trying to get them better at at the same time. And every fight's a little bit different. And Perhaps if you don't have a good like first principle system, you will like pendulum. You'll be like, they're not fit enough. Oh, they're not strong enough. Oh, they're not fit enough. Oh, it's this. And you'll just keep going like this. I'd say it's probably more a, a, like for at least the, the things I've experienced is that is people, coaches, other support staff, everybody that you're working with is being able to manage expectation, expectations and the what is the expected rate of progress? Because you will get like one athlete that just booms through mm. like you do, because if you, if you have 100 athletes by nature one of them is going to boom through 10 of them are going to drop out and then you got kind of the rest of them in the middle 
So I think it's that not abandoning like your 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 plan, like just because perhaps something hasn't 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 gone hasn't gone the way you expected it. I say if I like going back now, and this is something that like I've been out of judo for a few years now, so I don't know how the philosophies changed or whatnot, but I do think with those development athletes, the more what you gain quickly, you lose quickly, or what grows quick, rots quick. So if you just do somebody and blast their strength for like a six-week block and then have them hammer competitions and diet and make weight for so long, they're not going to retain those adaptations that you've got. They're just not. So I, I do think there's a case of writing a plan where you have designated periods of competition interspersed with definite periods of physical and technical and tactical development. And that's like, particularly when I was in the sport, that was a difficult thing to do because you want to, you're getting junior athletes and going to need to expose them to the top level. So they're going to do this grand slam. And then they're also doing junior world cups and the season just, as you say, just becomes they're competing so much. They don't ever really get the time to make those, those, those physical improvements. Um, so definitely if I, that breakthrough period, I would actually be thinking I need to have clear windows where they're going to compete and then clear physical development opportunities. Mm. Like for me, it's a, it's a bit of a no brainer, but some people will put value on, I need them to compete loads because then they get exposed to that level. I suppose the argument I would, I would have against that, it's not to say that I'm right, but what's your rate limiters mm. <laughs> does doing loads of competitions. It certainly addresses some of the rate limiters, but there's other ones that are, they're physical that then need to be addressed and that's sort of my idea and if they're not getting addressed then you're probably not going to get to the very top level and that must be quite a frustrating person because especially in judo you'll have no real control over what tournaments they do and then i guess you feel compromised in what you can deliver as a coach i guess yeah yeah def- definitely i think i suppose Something I, I don't think this would be a unique issue to, to judo in, in Britain. This will be a global issue. Mm. Um, and as judo becomes an even more global sport, which it really is now, like, yeah. it's just all over the place, you end up with these same, every country will end up in, in these same sort of problems. So I tend to think there's a bit of a responsibility to be pushed back on the organisations that, that set the competition calendar to... Um, almost create, like I'm not aware if this is done at the moment because I'm not involved in the sport now, but it certainly is done in rugby because of the physical nature of it as well, where here is the windows where we will have international windows. Um, Here is your club windows where you can play club and you can't do both at the same time. You're not allowed. It's it's called uh, regulation nine windows. You cannot do both at the same time. So you can't do this for your club and then do this. It's really welcome. And then here's your physical development period where you won't play any matches and it's it's come it's a top-down approach. Um, and I think if you look at the physical changes in the sport of rugby since you know the last 20 years taking these sort of approaches, and it's not that there's not flaws in it, there's clearly flaws in it, but from a physical point of view, having these designated periods of you have to have an off-season to prepare you for what you're going to do at club, which is a lower intensity, which prepares you for what you're going to do at international demands. That's a really good um, physical, technical, psychological um, sort of, if you want to call it periodization or just plan to develop developing athletes. Yeah, actually, that's just made me go off on a little tangent then, actually, when, when you're speaking. So I was thinking, well, it's almost like for me, judo, because 
there's no getting away from it. Sport is run by money, okay, and advertising. And there's no, and rugby's in a really nice position that they've broken through. They're at the top now. They're obviously not as big as football, but they're a really big sport. So they can then turn around and dictate to the media. And like, there's no, they can go, no, this is what we're doing. Whereas judo is almost at a point now that, in say, in Japan, that it's a big sport, but globally, it's still not big. So they're almost thinking, well, we need to do more. We need to push through. We need to make it on the TV every single week. And then I guess that's the same as the athlete and what we're talking about with the athletes. They're trying to get through. So it'd be very difficult for judo to dictate that on, on the lower yeah. levels because they're thinking, well, we need money to fund our sport. Yeah, I think, yeah, totally. I, I like ultimately, like on this, and I've like it's, I've just done something there that I would I'd probably be quite judgmental of, but you're giving an opinion on something without having seen any yeah. data. I think really importantly, this is the sort of stuff if if you want to influence something, and like I have good experience of this in rugby because I have absolutely no like um like uh, weight of my character to go on. It needs to be through data to be able mm. to to change things but i'd be really interested to if it's not being collected for somebody or an organization start collecting it and looking at the exposure that different age grades of players are having the number of competitions they've been exposed to the number of international training camps and whatnot particularly doing it if you did it through like days of days of year because then you get a percentage of time where you can't make physical development gains or it's difficult to make those those sort of gains and then looking at attrition weights, rates through dropping out, through burnout or through injury, mm. if that's not getting collected, it's probably quite valuable because if you then have this, oh, competitions have gone up, which is it's a hypothesis, yeah. or end up having people drop off, you can then start going back to these um, organizations and saying, look, this is what our in-house study has done. Would you like to do the same one? And then once you collect five or six years worth of data, and it doesn't change like that, it does take a bit of time, then you start being able to go, okay, we have found this now, Let's mitigate that by doing this. But if, unless somebody starts collecting that. Yeah, do. I'm definitely not the man for the job. You said you were good with numbers. I'm the opposite to that. So, I, but yeah, no, you're right. And I, I like it once the all that evidence is collected and I can read it. But I, yeah. you know, but that that's it, isn't it? It's about finding more information. And then as coaches, you can give a little bit more informed opinions and you're not basically going... Well, where judo sort of gets away with a little bit because it is a martial arts, we can sort of say, well, it's not 100% of this, not 100% of that, so we're going to do it slightly like this. And you always have that leeway, and that's why you can sort of put S&C slightly further down when it might be need to go up. And so, yeah, so it's very hard, isn't it, to get get that information. But I would would definitely like to see how that that all ties in, Yeah, information. But one of the things um, I wanted to ask you as well is when – because you do know a bit about judo, when you're thinking about S&C for judo players, how much consideration do you take into the way they do judo? So, for example, um, say a really like explosive lightweight, they're always trying to throw every, you know, 30 seconds, they're always on the go compared to maybe a slightly heavier weight that, you know, really play... I suppose it doesn't even be heavyweight. They're all definitely lighter weights that sort of structure their fight completely differently. They're not taking as many risks. They're looking to do five minutes. How much consideration do you take that in at that elite level? Uh, quite, quite a lot. Quite, quite a lot because um, uh, ultimately, again, going through this sort of principle approach of what outcome do I want? Okay, what's going to be the things that are going to limit, limit me there? There's certain things that you just, you know, at that top level, you go, I don't think that limits them. They're, they're, they don't need to, the outcome they're trying to achieve 
they don't need those physical things at a very high level for. So actually, just because they're at a relatively low level of it, if I improve that, it's not going to help for that. And um, like just as an example, as an athlete, I won't name them, that I worked with a while ago, um, as about as successful as you can get. Wasn't really trying to stand up, throw people, wanted to win a Nawaza. So then improving like lots of explosive qualities um, wasn't really needed because they're not going to try and throw somebody. What they're going to try and do is... Um, hammer them on the grips, really be in a dominant position, have huge amount of trunk and hip and glute strength to brace attacks. And then when they transition onto the ground, they need to be able to have really good trunk control, hip control and those things. So that person has a way more biased strength and mobility based program versus somebody else who, you know, you're going to be throwing people. Um, and, and that's what we need for you. Similarly, if you've like, <laughs> like this is the reality of the sport, isn't it? You have some people that are pretty poor technique. Like they just do. It either breaks them because they're, you know, bending on their knees the whole time or they're just doing things that you go, your body's not meant to move like that. Again, that person, then you're going to be much less greedy with how much training time they do because they're going to be doing things like that their body doesn't really want to be doing. So in the weight room, then you're going to be thinking, right, their total training capacity is going to have to be less because they're going to go on the mat and move in this horrific way. Yeah, they're a bit tolerant to it, but I can't be greedy with the volume that I do. I need to be really, really intelligent with that. And so it does, it, it, come, it comes into like quite a lot. Um, and then you get the sort of more nuanced stuff that you maybe look at the way you would have benchmarks for weight categories of things. Like a big one for me was, I think I spoke about in that marathon example, of like top speed and then marathon pace in judo, there's lots of different ways of doing this, but the way that I did it, and I, I think it's a simple way it worked well in judo is having somebody's like peak power, for example, in a rowing machine that you might get from like a 30 second all out test. I'd call it anaerobic capacity test, but what their max power is and then what their maximum aerobic power would be. So I would use a 2K row. You could use a six minute test. But if you take the, the, the 30 second peak power and then the 30, their um, power from their aerobic from their six minute test or the 2K row, and look at those as a percentage, what you'll quickly find is that most people who get to the elite level are within a bandwidth. So let's say the bandwidth is 45 to 60% in that bandwidth. If you're, let's say, up at 75%, that means your aerobic system is really close to your anaerobic system. You're probably not going to be able to give those bursts of power and exchanges. So if somebody goes, opens up a can on you, you're probably not going to be able to raise your game. Yeah. Likewise, you have some people that their top 30 second power is here, but their aerobic capacity is so low that if they give a big like attack rate for 30 seconds or whatnot, their aerobic system is just not well enough developed to be able to help them recover. So then their power just dies off. So as a generic with everybody, I would have some global judo player benchmarks. I would, for the weight categories, I would end up saying, Right. I think for most lightweights, these are the bandwidths. For most heavyweights, these are the bandwidths. And I would call that my outside view of what the sport looks like. You just need to be that. Then you start looking at how the person wants to do judo. So are they wanting to win early on? Are they wanting to go to golden score? Are they going to win through Nawaza and not throw? And then you probably, and this is the thing that takes the most adjustment, is looking at the trends of the way the sport is going at that moment in time. So this isn't clearly not a scientific study, but 
just um, one of the things I was looking at, I think it was at the Worlds, I'm still still friends with, or still speak to a couple of people that are in judo. And if you look at how many of the, so this was a discussion we were having, I was saying, oh, this would be an interesting thing because then you could be able to tailor training for it. Is how, as a percentage, or how many matches, however you want to do it, do your quarterfinal, semifinal, and final matches go to golden score versus your early rounds? Because then if you have your top people who you know are in slimmer, in weight categories that don't have as much depth, you know you're almost going to get to the quarterfinal nine times out of ten. Then you start looking at, well, how do you win your medal rounds? Because that's the demand that you're trying, that's the outcome you want. And then if you look at it, if it goes to golden score, which I think I'd done the first four weight categories of the of the worlds, and I think I was up like 80-something percent. And I was like mm. looking at the duration of them. You go, so how do people win those golden score? Like what is the scenario, the context that they're winning? I think then that allows you to be much more targeted and going at 100 kilos. It's always going to golden score and it's always going by a shido. And the shido is being given for this thing. Now we need to train those scenarios because that's the way judo's going. If you've got a good analysis department, you'll be able to update that so that then, all right, now they're giving them for this or now they're giving them for this. So I think that's the question that you're sort of asking, how much is just general and how much is bespoke? For me, I think you can get really, really bespoke. And this is where, like, I'm glad you've mentioned this. This is where I think actually coaching goes to the next level. And this is where you know, uh, S&C coaches, performance analysis, when they understand the, when judo coaches understand what they can deliver and, you know, when you're looking at higher level in that round, because anecdotally, because there's much more of a disparity in level at the earlier rounds, you're going to get faster rip-ons. You're only going to get the better ones coming through, which means they're going to be a much more even fight. They're going to know how to, generally it's people that fight in on the tour fairly regularly and they're fighting the camps. So it's generally small margins that create that win so that you're not always going to get the up on throw that you're hoping for in the final because they're number one and number 10, like they're, they're really good. You're not getting there by yeah. luck, you know, but once you've got that and once you're able to go as an S&C coach, right. So I've got one of the best players in the world here. We know that they're going to have an easier round. So we need to structure their day. They need to be prepared like this. And that's yeah. the difference you can make. Oh, def- definitely. Like I think, and even, and that's just, that's just going to like, I'd say that's like fairly high level. You do need a good team, but like, I'm not by any means saying like a coach by themselves can do that. You need a big support team with resources around you. But simple things that coaches can do for that, I think, to make things a little bit more like bespoke is um, like, I'm a big fan of it. You, you get them as like doorman clickers. So like when you click off, you're, you're in type, type thing. But a, a really useful way of measuring, like, People talk about intensity in judo, but it's a really poorly defined concept. If I ask 10 coaches, what do you think intensity is? And I get 10 different answers. One of the ways that most people would agree with is like attack rate per minute. So how many attacks are you putting in per minute? Or another way is looking at like critical actions a minute. So how many times are you attacking or being attacked? Which would be fairly high, high powered output things. We'll find that across the weight categories, attack rate or critical actions per minute will change at 60 kilos, pretty high. At 78 kilo women, it's not very high. So then if you then go, well, the the fitness requirements for that, for, for that and how you would train them or how you might build 
judo specific sessions are going to be a little bit different. If, you know, in 60 kilo judo, we're looking at six attacks per minute is kind of what the peak at what you find from a fairly difficult fight with world ranked people. Right. If we can get people to do eight or nine attacks per minute, that's giving them a surplus of 20, 30% above that. Right. So then when they need to come down and then do the, the, the six attacks per minute, they've got the surplus. Right. How can I design sessions around that? If I just have, and then I can monitor it with really low budget. Oh yeah, there was an attack or there was the other person attack and I can, and I can go like that. And then I can go attack rate needs to be up. Now, some people would be against that because they'll go, it's circumstantial. Attack rate is circumstantial. So you're absolutely right. Attack rate is circumstantial. But then at some point you're going to be dictated to by an opponent. And if you're going to physically be prepared to deal with those worst case scenarios, you probably need to have surplus of capacity. So I get the whole, it's circumstantial, or you might look at attack rate. So I look a lot at this in rugby and unfortunate because I have a big team around me and I have good technology, but I'll look at um, number of accelerations, tackles per minute, um, number of changes of direction, um, loads of different metrics we'll look at per minute. So then we have a baseline of this is the this is what a really hard minute looks like when you're attacking. This is what a really hard minute looks like when you're defending. You're making two tackles a minute there. You're making one clear out a minute there. Right. We can now design games and scenarios to overload these 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 critical elements. You can do the same thing in a budget way as judo. Just looking at a couple of matches that you think are. Bit, bit crazy or not per weight category you could pick three or four of them at big tournaments just look at the attack rates per minute and then go right that's the demands of how many explosive actions they've got to do i'll set up some some situations in judo perhaps in a small area so there's more edge situations there's more opportunities for throwing and then i'll just i'll just track it and then i know that i've designed myself there a fairly specific attack rate per minute session if people go Oh, was that intense? Yeah, it was more intense than a match because they did eight attacks versus they only did six there, so it's 150%. So I think being able to scale things for judo is quite good, but yeah. <laughs> well, it's really interesting, actually. Um, it's one of the things that I don't... This, this is no evidence behind this, apart from me <laughs> watching and doing some, some of my own stuff. So this is all anecdotal, but I, I worked with a group of players and basically I wanted... I wanted them to understand what a judo match actually looked like, what it was and what, you know, what went on in their head, because their reality of what judo is, is very different to what actually happens on, on the mat. And I think general fans, it's the same. And we remember the first rounds of when there's loads of ippons and stuff. So, we looked at matches from sort of quarterfinals up. So ones where there's some jeopardy, like if they lose, they're going down. And I sort of said to him, how many attacks do you think will be in the first minute? And, you know, oh, three, four, six, blah, blah, blah. And this it wasn't just in the heavyweights. This was from lightweights where we picked uh, some random. And I didn't, yeah. we just went, oh, let's look at this boat. And what we found was generally in the first minute, one if you're lucky attack okay and then once you there, there would be a point of break where basically one person would bridge the gap and take the risk and once that person had done it the fight opened up for an exchange there would be more attacks there would, there would be something happening but generally not before that first minute and as the fight went on if there was no ip on score it then slowed down again because now they're thinking about golden score. So actually, yeah. so the pace of a fight wasn't 
attacking every six minutes, uh, every six attacks every minute. Yeah. Because the evolution of the fight, they didn't take into account the fact that at the beginning they didn't want to make a mistake because you don't want to lose in the first 10 seconds. Yeah. And then at the end, they're already eyeing up golden score. So then they're thinking about, so actually the biggest period, and it's the bit in the middle where you then have to manage because there's jeopardy of losing. But in the yeah. earlier rounds, because there was a disparity in where, you know, in, in sometimes, uh, in the better ones versus the not so good ones, so that's why I yeah. didn't really look at those fights. It was only when we started getting up in the 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 um, yeah. yeah, started getting closer, I guess. Yeah, I think and like something there, like when we spoke earlier about complexity, when you start learning stuff like that, like your your mind goes in loads of different directions, and that's where I think the sort of first principles process of okay, well, what would limit me being able to do attacks, a little flurry of attacks after three or four minutes, and then what would I might need to do another one after six minutes when I'm in golden score? And that's then where you go, well, that's your aerobic system. So then, okay, I need to have a really well-trained aerobic system because ultimately that will give my brain feedback to say, you're not so you're not a critical failure, you're not about to die. You can <laughs> you can activate muscle fibers and you can keep fighting. So that's then where you can actually simplify that and be a bit like, right, yeah, do you need a really good aerobic capacity system? Let's train that in the best way that we can. But then we also want to, the bit you're talking about is we're doing a bit of this in, in rugby now and I find it really interesting and I am by no means a psychologist, but I think this is a really interesting concept that like might as well share because if not, it might, like you, you want to share stuff, don't you? Yeah, be so, good on, on a podcast, you share it. Thanks, you, mate. You, Don't keep it in yeah, your head. <laughs> if, you, um, if you think in a movie, a movie has either I think it's either three act sequence or nine act sequence and you basically are introduced to a character and you go through this emotional trick like um it's, it's the same the, the character you're introduced to them they've got a problem and they then come up against some sort of immovable object or force there's like they then hit rock bottom they struggle they almost get free then there's something else in the way and then they eventually finish on a high, like, I'm Harry Potter, I'm a boy, I'm a wizard, here's my problem. Oh, I, f- I find out I'm a wizard. Oh, great, there's a little bit of, like, oh, this is excitement. Oh, my family don't want me to be a wizard. Like, rock bottom, and then, and all the different acts. If you... And I like how you used Harry Potter as an example <laughs> of this. Uh, I've actually never you've... seen Harry Potter, but... Oh, yeah, uh, whatever, I don't believe you. I do not believe move you. Move the books out of the way. <laughs> if we think about a fight or a contest or a rugby match or whatever sport you want, you can differentiate into different emotions. You will feel different emotions at different points of the match. You might feel anxiousness. You might feel nervousness. You might feel frustration. Yeah, your arousal state changes, doesn't it? Totally changes. And then the example we're, we've sort of, I've sort of been using in rugby with the coaches is we'll do handling drills where we'll pass the ball between the people and whatnot. And then we'll come into a match We'll be in the same scenario and we'll drop the ball in that scenario. We'll go, why are they dropping the ball? We'll go, well, at this moment in time, when we do it in training, the emotional state of the players is it's just a drill. If you drop the ball, so well. When we're then in the contest or in the, in the match and we're right at the edge, and if this person, they're now not just catching a ball, they're about to take all of the training that's been done, all of the expectations of people, the, 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 um, relationships they have with their team all those things are now encompassing to my perception isn't catching the ball my perception is i'm being entrusted with 
taking this thing over that line. And we never practice in those emotional states. So I think that there's something around designing training to put people in different emotional states. So you could maybe map out what a fight would be like you've kind of done it there from a tack point of view. It'd be interesting to get the same group of players that you work with go, how do you, how do you feel? Or what would you be thinking at the beginning there? What would you be feeling? Would you be anxious? Would you be nervous? Would you be excited? Would you be frustrated? Okay. Right now, this has happened. You did that attack or the referee's giving you a penalty. What's your emotion right there? Okay. I'm frustrated. I thought it was a good attack. I've been given a penalty for it. Okay, so now you've got to do your gripping, your whatnot, under emotions of frustration. Okay, the next one then is this. I'm 30 seconds from the end. I'm winning. I'm going to win the world championships, whatever it is. Super excited, or I might be nervous because whatever it is. And then as a coach, being able to think, how can we design training sessions to target and put people in those sort of emotional states as a base layer, then the physical layer on top of it, and then all the other stuff. I think that's like an interesting direction that, that take to take judo. If only we had enough time and resources. Uh, yeah, it'd be. I'd love some to people. Some like people that, maybe yeah. do. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I'm sure they do. I wish it. Yeah, it's something I wish. Uh, avenge. That's somewhere I would like to take my coaching journey in the future to be able to work in those situations. It. It's just, yeah, and I think you could, you could though, you do always have to keep perspective on what the goal is you want to achieve because you could go down so many rabbit holes. There's so many people I speak to and you can get too specialised uh, in, in that regard. As a judo coach, I feel like sometimes you go off and then there's a point of no return. You'll never get back to reality and what actually matters of, you know, producing the results. Oh, totally. Yeah, you, you, guys, you guys have probably got to be the biggest generalists Um around have a good bit of knowledge a really broad knowledge in everything specialists in the, the technical tactical side but yeah absolutely you, you probably will have awareness of everything but it's impossible like even now like i'd be considered like my specialism is strength and conditioning the rate at which new stuff comes out i was speaking to i had a meeting this morning with somebody i was saying rehab snc is such a specialism within snc and then understanding technology for rehab within snc that I'm way off the mark there. Like I need to go and speak to this person because yeah. supposed to be the lead. I have no idea what that thing does. Like, but and that's and you guys are then even the level above that. So well, that's horrible as well because you know as judo coaches sometimes you fear that you're going to be found out as an imposter because you don't know the answers to it because you know where especially club judo where there's no real support system around and you get people asking all these questions and. You know, you you are that much of a general, not in a bad way, but you're a generalist in your yeah. terms. There's so many things that you can't answer with any real, you know, uh, authority. Yeah, to, to, I, to, I totally agree. So I, I understand what you mean with the we imposters. I think now, like, you, there's certain things that you go, that's been around for a while. Let's not change that. It's probably there for a reason. But at the same time, you can argue why it shouldn't be there. Yeah. So then I can, everything I've said in the last however long, I can argue completely against that yeah. and destroy it. So you do end up in a bit of the situation going, I have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> That's how I live my life. Don't worry. <laughs> but, but, <laughs> I'm conscious of, it, of the time actually, but, uh, but I did want to talk about your new book. Can you yeah. let us know a bit about it? Yeah. So um, I suppose it came from like most people in, in lockdown, they've got a bit of spare time on their hands and, um, 
I got quite quite a lot of people sort of contact me for judo stuff, like even if it's like one-off questions, like does creatine cause weight gain or, um, or oh, I'm injured, I'm wondering what sort of conditioning I should be doing or I want to move down a weight category. I still tend to get quite a bit of questions. And I thought I one of the ways I learn best is I write like essays on things to like formulate my thoughts. And I have this collection of quite a lot of them are just general S and C essays that I'd, that I'd written like previously around things and I thought do you know what a mechanism that sport doesn't have very well that other industries does have well medicine do it well the military do it very well aviation do it well is capturing knowledge that's permanent and I thought like I spoke to you at the beginning of the podcast there's been some really good people that have worked in judo um Stuart Yule's one of them who I work with now at Scotch Rugby for him to and his knowledge to have been lost out of judo is like a real shame you have different perspectives. You know, you had prior to me working in British, you had sort of Patrick Rue and, and Aurelian doing the SSC. You sort of had me and I've obviously got, like don't know a lot of things, but I've been through an experience and, 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 and learned stuff, obviously working in different sports. And it's a shame that that knowledge is almost not captured in any way in the sport. And you then just leave the sport and then potentially the next person that comes in is just back to, back to square one. So I kind of thought for, um, It'd be a good way to just capture some of my my thoughts. This is what I think of the sport of judo um, and how I would go about doing different things. Try and write it in a way that a coach can pick it up and they can go, right, I want to learn about strength and power. Here's the basic concepts, but here's how it applies to judo or I want to learn about flexibility. Here's the concepts, the basic underpinnings. Here's how you can apply it in a judo setting. So I really kind of wrote it just for coaches, coaches and athletes who... Um, who are obviously still going to be involved in judo, but there's just not, in judo, there's not much resources for that. There's mm. just like, or I'm aware of that, you know, in rugby or football, there's tons of books, but in judo, there's just, there's just not. And I suppose the biggest hope I want, and I'm like, hopefully it's come across in the podcast, is that I hope people, if they do read it, what I definitely wouldn't want is people to go, this guy says this, so it's right. Mm. I would love in like 10 years time for other people to have like come out and gone, totally disagree with that or this is new information that he's totally wrong on that and then to have that as an open discussion forum so then everybody can benefit it and everybody's knowledge comes up i think one of the worst things to do is go oh this guy's written this book that's the way to do it it's so like by all means when people people are going to read it just get a discussion going and tear apart what you what you think and that's how the sport's going to move forward isn't it i think so but there's going to be plenty of people who who the last like there's gonna be plenty of coaches that the last thing they looked at in snc were when they're back in school in whatever decade that was so actually yeah. whatever knowledge is in that book is going to be extremely helpful especially as you know a lot of my research that there's nothing that directly correlates to judo and we talked about the complexities of the sport how you have to be aerobically fit anaerobically fit you have to be really strong but yet really flexible and there's so many things that battle against each other for our sport and being able to just just work your way through with a relation to what we do yeah so i would say like that's like that's kind of the way the book starts just trying to get people to formulate their thoughts on okay, it is really complex. Here's maybe a hierarchy of things you maybe want to go through to formulate your thoughts and then where the physical things kind of kind of sit. Because if you don't give people that sort of context or a framework to, to think within, it does become really difficult. So like 
I think if you're if you're a judo coach or an athlete and you're particularly in that, I want to be competitive. I'm probably not at the elite level, but I'm in that sort of um, like want to be competitive and I'm developing. It's a it's a good place to just get like a performance framework to be able to be able to write write training from. And then I would hope that it has enough basic knowledge in there that people go understand what the aerobic system is and why it's important to help people recover between exchanges and recover between contests on the day. I understand the anaerobic system is there to help me do sustained high intensity attacks within the contest contest, right? That's my basic level. How do I actually do that? Mm-hmm. And then oh, there's, there's three different methods of how I could plan training to do that. I'm going to try method one. Well, and then from there, they can go through it, reorientate themselves and, and move on. So it's a, uh, ho- hopefully it's us- useful to people. Um, and uh, I'm sure in 10 years time, I'll look back on it, having learned more stuff and go, that's, that's, I disagree with that now. But Yes, that just means there's going to be a volume two, so it's fine. So where- well, that's what I was trying to get a plug in there for. Yeah. <laughs> so where could people find the book, Alan? Uh, so I have, an, I have an Instagram page that I set up, which is new to me. I'm not particularly uh, social media savvy, but it's at High Performance Judo. Yep. Yeah, and uh, so I put on post there, I put on some quotes from the book, and then there's a link in the bio there that if people people do want to purchase it, they can click on the link. Um, like I've tried to, my main thing is I want people to be able to read it and be able to learn from it. So it's it's priced fairly fairly low, I think. Um, at twelve. How much is it? Twelve pound. Now, £12. let me any twelve pound for a book that possibly is, you know even if it gives you an incremental gain in your knowledge of five percent, like it's more than worth it. Like when I say I've spent hundreds if not thousands of pounds on books and education for myself yeah. over the past year that's 12 pounds an absolute snitch isn't it and what yeah. what i'll do is i'll i'll put all the links in the description of this podcast as well so everybody if you want to find it make sure you follow alan on instagram and you're on twitter as well do you want them following you yeah. on twitter or rather not yeah you can do like twitter mostly <laughs> i post about maths and physics so uh, my twitter handle is mr a mcdonald um so, uh, and yeah, I post my SSC stuff on that too, but mostly engineering and physics. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so I'll, I'll put all the links and where you go. Um, but yeah, no, uh, Alan, I really appreciate your time. I know we've gone on and I did warn you, I don't edit anything, it all goes in. So yeah, no, I really appreciate it. No, no, thanks for having me on, it's been good. And uh, yeah, just uh, if people do have questions and stuff, just feel free to find me a message on social media. Brilliant, thanks mate. Cool, cheers Vince. So a massive thank you to Alan for that. It was, yeah, I it was so enjoyable to have that chat and talk about areas of S&C and things that I really hope you coaches, players, judo enthusiasts, whoever you are, I think can find valuable in the way people think about the sport, the way an S&C coach sees it, um, even how it interlinks with other sports. I just really enjoyed it. I thought it was a really good chat. Real, he's very, very knowledgeable on SNC. And yeah, and <clears throat> as I said, please, please have a look at the book. It's 12 quid. Like, yeah, go, jump on it. it. There's loads in there for you. Um, so I did say I want to talk a bit about the Olympics. Now, I did actually start recording another podcast with just me talking about the games and stuff. And I got about 20, 25 minutes into it and I bored myself to tears. So I just scrapped it. I deleted it. I got this podcast on instead. 
I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it to myself. I couldn't do it to you guys. So I'm hoping this uh, podcast has, yeah, been well worth it. And uh, But there was a few things I wanted to talk about um, with the games. First of all, I want to give you guys, some of you might not know exactly when it is, where you can watch. I want to give you a bit of background on that. But just a couple of thoughts going into it as well. So it starts at 11 a.m. on Saturday the 25th, um, Japanese time. Okay, so for us, GMT is 3 a.m. in the morning on Saturday. So I've been racking my brains trying to work out how much sleep I think I need to get through the week and stuff and how much I can watch live and how much I'm going to have to record because that's going to be the tricky bit. Like, I don't like watching it recorded because I like... That's the thing with sport, isn't it? You like following it as it happens. It's never the same if it's recorded and, you know, it's a live event. Um, So, yeah, so trying to work that out. Now, that is on Eurosport it's on Discovery Plus now I've got Sky Sky Q box so I literally just signed up to that you get a free year and they seem to have like quite a complete um, broadcast of it so you can literally go on to that um, BBC Red Button will show stuff but I don't know exactly how much they're showing it's not on ipon.org okay so you work normally with our judo tournaments that's what we jump on ipon.org um, and then we start watching it through the RGF. So it's part of the Olympic Broadcasting Service, uh, which I found out today, by the way. I didn't know all this. So I actually asked some people. Uh, so, yeah, so that that's it. That's when it's on. Starts under 68 kilos for men, 48 for women. And then it's one weight category every single day up until the team event. And I was thinking about the team event, actually, because I was, I was wondering, like, everybody's going to say Japan's going to win that, which... Obviously, we all think that. And I was thinking, well, they most probably could field their second team for most of it and then bring the, the top guns in later on. Because like, I was thinking, like, well, Hashimoto's still been training, so I wonder if they're going to use him for the team event for most of it and then decide if they need to use Ono or not. Um, and the same with a couple of other players. But then I also thought, well, with the weight categories, France could be right up there. Like, France has a good chance... Um, in this especially with some of the their women obviously teddy you, you've got to say teddy's still a favorite to win his third olympic title i yeah i honestly believe teddy will win it i don't i don't think he'll lose the games um so yeah so that was going to be really interesting i i just wonder whether there is an upset on the cards because i think as well like with the stadium it's going to be completely empty and for those of you who watch football or other sports, when the pandemic started, football returned with no crowds. And there was teams that were travelling away. Like, in football, there was always a home advantage because you had your home crowd. Um, obviously, they, they the players felt more comfortable. But with the crowd away, actually, it sort of levelled the playing field. So I wonder whether there's going to be something like that in this game's whether there is going to feel like instead of having the crowd on top of you helping you supporting you through which was a massive thing in london for our london judoka whether they're going to miss that out or whether japan are just machine like they're able to go through the gears you know but i think there's going to be some upsets it's difficult to think they would lose 60 66 or 73s it's very difficult i think they'll definitely struggle above that Lightweights, I think, you know, I honestly think that 
they're going to do well across the board. And I was wondering whether I thought they were going to do like seven, eight goals, especially with a team event. But you, I don't know, you just wonder whether they're, especially in the women as well, there's some really great women fighters. Now, I honestly don't think 48s, I don't think uh, Daria Billadib will win it. I don't, I, I'm not sure. I think, yeah, I'm not sure she's going to win it. I think if it was a couple of years ago, I would have said 100% she's going to win. But I think she's lost a few times now. Um, so, yeah, so I think there's a few in the women, actually, where they could come unstuck as well. I'm just thinking about, um, yeah, there's just some great fighters. I just, it's going to be so good to watch and so unpredictable. And you've got like teams like Uzbekistan, Sweden, Italy, like who are going to have a good few players in the mix to really upset. And that's not obviously not even counting Russia, France, uh, Korea, Brazil, like the ones that we expect. I think there's going to be a few other teams that are really pushing pushing the boundaries on it and I think it's gonna be great and I, I say to any of you guys make sure you're following these athletes on Instagram as well um, the stories give you a real good like I've wasted quite quite a bit of time now watching some of the stories on what they're up to and what they're going through and I think it's gonna be such a, a removed experience from any other games or anything else they've ever done so it's yeah it's gonna it's gonna be great and also, I think in this Olympics, there's going to be, not upsets, but a few of the older judoka are actually doing really well. Um, I, I just think that people, people, for example, like, um, his name's just gone. Now, what I should do is just pause and edit this, uh, just so you don't hear me wa wasting time trying to remember. Under 66... Ukrainian, why enough can I not remember his name? Uh, oh my God, what am I doing? Right, so I can't even believe I've just done this. I'm in the middle of a podcast and I'm now having to quickly log on. Santa Raya, there we go. Got it. Sorry for that. You've been on here for over an hour and a half. You haven't to listen to me dribble through that. But yeah, I think there's going to be some older players that are going to do really well. Uh, I'm going to big shout out to all Team GB. I wish you the very best of luck for the games. I know, yeah, it's going to be hard for everyone. But yeah, I wish you all the very best. And how do you guys think it's going to go? Let me know what you think um, of the games, how it's going, any predictions. Hit me up on social media. Uh, on email, whatever you think. Um, but yeah, I look forward to speaking to you guys over the week and catching up next week with a few results in the bag. Um, talking about some of the action. Uh, but yeah, no, I'm going to leave it there. I think great, great podcast about it. I really enjoyed it. I hope you guys did. I hope you found some value in that. And I've got some good podcasts um, organized again. And I really look forward to speaking to you guys very, very soon. Don't forget to share the podcast um, and also subscribe and share on social media. Cheers, guys. Bye.